This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is USDA Chief Economist Robert Johansson. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc. CHS Inc. is a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States. CHS is diversified in energy, grains, and foods and committed to growing their business through domestic and global operations. USDA Chief Economist Robert Johansson joins us next here on Open Mic. What does it mean to be relevant in today's global agriculture marketplace? To CHS, it means having the people and facilities in place to deliver U.S. grain to a feedlot in South Korea or investing in energy production and distribution to help ensure dependable fuel supplies for our local communities. In fact, we've invested more than $1.4 billion on our owner's behalf to make sure we stay relevant now and into the future. To learn more, visit chsinc.com. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Global and domestic equity markets have taken a significant fall over the past several trading sessions. Since mid-July, commodity markets have also been on a downward spiral. USDA Chief Economist Robert Johansson says U.S. net farm income was forecast much lower earlier in the year, and current market fundamentals show little signs of amending that outlook. We're expecting net farm income and net cash income both to fall this year, primarily because commodity prices are coming down. The livestock sector is a bit of a mixed bag. Cattle production is still providing pretty good returns. We're expecting prices for steer, for example, to remain at record levels uh, both in 2015 and then again in 2016, perhaps coming down a little, but still at historically high rates. Now for the row crops, uh, certainly for the major row crops, corn, uh, soybeans, wheat, uh, we're seeing an expectation of lower prices, and certainly the futures market and cash markets are reflecting that right now. And as a result, we are seeing farmers finding it difficult to break even with their expected returns. That certainly will affect equity markets as well. We've seen Wall Street sell off significantly. We've seen crop commodity prices sell off, especially since mid-July. We've seen crude oil down and metals down. Are these related? You know, I think there are a lot of linkages in there. And certainly, as an economist, I would point to you have an event occur uh, over in China or down in Brazil or something, for example, and it affects not only commodity markets, but stock markets as well. Those countries are following their own economic development plans with respect to their currencies. And certainly, you know, those things affect the markets uh, in different ways, but, you know, they're both being affected by those policies. And so we see, um, for example, currency devaluation in, in Brazil resulting in their, their soybean producers seeing a relatively normal return for soybeans, for soybean production down in Brazil. And so they're planting as much or more acres to soybeans as they would have before versus in the United States where the dollar is uh, appreciating relative to the real, we're seeing expected returns to soybean production going down, and you would expect to see perhaps, well, certainly we did see a slight increase in soybean uh, expected planting this year. Uh, if not for some of the, some extremely wet weather, we probably would have seen more soybean acres being planted, but not as much as we would have had the dollar been appreciating. And certainly uh, looking forward to next year, we would expect that if the dollar is remaining similarly high, we would uh, might not see uh, growth in soybean acres again this coming year. What are the circumstances or the events that you see that have led China 
to devalue its currency recently? Is it related to Europe, or is it just a matter of their own system? They have devalued their currency slightly. They've let it come down a little bit relative to the dollar, but you know, not a huge amount. It has come down, and that does make their exports a little bit more competitive relative to our exports and makes our exports to China, for example, our commodity exports to China, a little bit more expensive. They are, of course, our, our largest consumer of U.S. ag products, and so when that happens, we, we likely see a little some headwinds uh, for our export sales to that country. I think, from what I understand, um, and I'm not a macroeconomic expert, but uh, I do follow the news, um, the China concerns are more related to their slowing growth rates. Uh, they still have a fairly healthy growth rate in terms of GDP, but not as high as it has been historically over the last five years or so. So they have been experiencing pretty rapid growth, and that's coming down a little bit. And obviously, they're, they have a large country, a huge population, so uh, they're trying to manage as essentially this transition from a, you know, a developing country to a developed country. And in that transition, um, you see a lot of population movement from rural areas to urban areas. And, and so uh, finding jobs for all those people is important to continue to facilitate that transition. And so when they do have GDP slowing, they need oftentimes you know, to continue with that transition. They need to jumpstart their growth rates. And so I think this is one of the things that I've seen inside it as a reason for why they're letting their currency float a little bit right now. What role does China's economy play on our own, and specifically for U.S. agriculture, mm-hmm. how does their action affect us? Well, you know, I guess I would just point to the fact that, you know, they purchase so much of our exports. Uh, they are our largest export trading partner. Um our NAFTA trading partners are, are larger as a combination, but as an individual country, China's the largest. And so anything that they do in terms of uh, their currency or their policies towards biotech or towards our livestock exports is going to affect our markets in terms of our ability to find uh, places to sell our products. Uh, so just a case in point is the China's policy towards our corn exports last year and then our uh, DDG exports, um, they've got a fairly uh, large uh, animal livestock sector, and they're always looking to purchase feed grains for, to, to develop uh, feed stock for that for those animals. And so the U.S. has been sending a lot of corn and DDGs to China uh, over the past years. And uh, last year, you know, China adopted some uh, re- constraints on our ability to sell our corn and then our DDGs to China. And uh, as a result, they started demanding um, a lot of other feed grains, uh, such as sorghum. So we saw a huge increase in the amount of demand from China for U.S. sorghum, and that consequently drove up the price of sorghum relative to corn. And as a result of that, we've seen uh, a huge amount of uh, increase uh, in planted acres to sorghum this year, um, sort of chasing that that demand. And we'll, we would expect to sell you know, a large portion of that crop to China this year for their uh, animal livestock sector. And so, uh, you know, that's just a, shows a direct result of, of China's policies on what U.S. producers are doing here in the United States. With regard to the Chinese, their currency has been devalued. Their economy has slowed down. They have shown reductions in their swine herd. Yet over the last month, they've shown big uh, imports of U.S. soy and of corn and of corn products. All of those elements together, do you expect it to change what they buy and how much they buy of U.S. products, and does it open the door for pork sales there? Yes, I think we will have see that opportunity. And, and 
and as uh, folks have pointed out in the past, you have to look at the short term versus the long term. I think in the long term, we expect China to continue um, to import a healthy amount of soybeans and other feedstocks, um, perhaps not as much corn as we once thought. I think it was two years ago that we expected China uh, over the next 10 years to increase their uh, imports of corn by, you know, from 7 to almost 20 million metric tons, and we've Valued, uh, revamped that estimation back downwards um, in recent years. China has been supporting their domestic uh, corn producers, and as a result, they've built some fairly substantial, or at least what we think are potentially substantial stock holdings in corn. And so as a result, they probably will not be uh, importing quite as much uh, you know, corn and perhaps DDGs as, as we had expected as recently as last year. But we do expect them to continue to import a substantial amount of U.S. soybeans, and similarly, Brazil and uh, Argentinian soybeans are expected to continue to flow to China to support their their domestic livestock industry. Well, they have reduced their their swine herd slightly. Um, you know, they've, they've been looking at expanding their modern livestock production techniques to take advantage of returns to scale, and in not just swine, but in other animal livestock areas, and I expect that they'll continue to want to try to improve their um, their domestic cap- capabilities of producing beef, dairy product, uh, and poultry, and uh, th- uh, th- that just suggests that they'll continue to import a good amount of soybeans from the United States as well as from South America. Back to the bigger picture and talking yeah. about currencies, we've seen sure. China devalue, Japan, Singapore, Malaysia, Brazil, as you mentioned, Vietnam have all recently varied their currency and lowered the value. There are calls for currency manipulation to even be a part of this TPP or or, or future trade deals. What makes currency policy and manipulating currency difficult to hold up in a trade deal? Oh, it's a great question. It's one that you should be asking the Treasury Department. I'm not I'm not the right person to ask, um, and I'm not sitting at the uh, negotiating table. But certainly... um, there's a lot of interest in this from not only folks, uh, you know, in the executive branches and other countries uh, that are negotiating this, but certainly with folks uh, in Congress. And um, and I imagine that uh, the issues are extremely complicated. I always think about things in terms of, you know, how it affects U.S. sales. And the stronger the dollar is, uh, you know, the harder it is for us to sell our products overseas. And so we understand that countries that are having perhaps recessionary pressures inside their country to try and battle that through their own monetary policy. And we did the same thing following our uh, recession eight years ago now. So we we understand that. And, you know, we expect that as those countries start to grow again, uh, grow more quickly, that that'll increase demand for our products overseas. And so it is a short-term, long-term thing. So in the short term, we understand, you know, while um, uh, other countries are pursuing their own monetary policies to spark economic growth, we wouldn't, you know, want that to continue, you know, into the future. We would expect those to, to balance out, and certainly that will help again, uh, both from from a demand side as well as from a supply side here in the United States. Somewhat of a paradox for farmers when you see lower commodity prices, they'd like to think that if they're going to suffer through that lower income, at least they would have the ability perhaps to sell more into the global market. But with the strength of our dollar compared to those other currencies, might not be that easy. That's right, you know, and we have been seeing uh, our products competing successfully uh, internationally um, at a growing rate. I mean, trade has certainly been trending upwards now for a good 10 years or more, and we would expect that to continue. We're coming off of uh, five years of very good times and very record high prices for commodities. You know, it's hard to compare 
prices and market opportunities right now compared to, say, two or three years ago when um, farmers were enjoying uh, historic farm income. But if you look back a little bit further, we're in line with trend. You know, if you go back to the 2000 to 2005 or six period, we're right in line with that trend and we're continuing upwards. And I would expect the trade's going to continue to be an, an important part of that. For example, we, we would expect dairy product trade to continue to increase. It's, uh, as we've, we, you know, we've brought, uh, U.S. prices in more in line with the world price for the, you know, the various dairy products and, uh, that's helped our dairy producers compete more you know, on an even playing field with the producers in the Oceania and, you know, Australia and New Zealand, as well as the Canadians. So we would expect that uh, trade, in not just in dairy products, but in other products as well, is going to continue to be an important component of what our producers are looking at in terms of selling their products overseas. Granted, as you mentioned, our products are more expensive now with a stronger dollar, but, you know, we're still able to compete. We're still able to sell uh, into the world market, uh, you know, we've got the storage capacity in our country to be able to hold out, at least in the grains, uh, until we see better prices. And um, so, you know, producers are very good at making those kinds of decisions and optimizing their output. So would you suggest that we're in a paradigm shift with regard to the value of, of commodities overall and in net farm income? In terms of long-term forecasts, I don't think what we're seeing right now is a huge paradigm shift. If you look back a couple of years ago, we, we, you know, our long-term baseline projections had had these prices, you know, give or take 25 cents a bushel, um, right around what we're seeing right now. Similarly, uh, in December when we put our long-term forecasts together, um, you know, we might have been a little bit lower than we are right now, actually. Um, and looking forward, those prices seem pretty stable. I think what what you know what what has moved uh, the markets around a lot, and I wouldn't call it a paradigm shift. I would just say that it's a little bit more volatility is the fact that we had a couple of years in there when we had really uh, adverse weather conditions uh, globally um, for some major commodities, and that brought stock levels down to very tight uh, stocks to use range that caused um, prices to be very. Uh, responsive to any type of, uh, you know, uh, adverse market situation that you'd have. And so, uh, for example, uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago in 2012 when we had a very historic drought here in the United States that brought stock levels for the major commodities down, tightened up uh, significantly on the feed price ratios for livestock producers. Um, as a result, we did see very high prices, but I wouldn't say that that was a paradigm shift. I would just say that that was, you know, we were still forecasting the fundamentals as being pretty similar to what they're at right now. It was just that stocks-to-use ratios became very tight, and as a result, prices became very sensitive. In your view, apparently the end of November, the EPA will make some statements with regard to the renewable fuel standard and volumes. How important have renewable fuels been to crop farmer income, and how much is riding on that EPA decision? Obviously, uh, we're in the proposed period right now for the renewable fuel standard and uh, volumetric obligations. Um, and as you mentioned, EPA will be coming out with their final rule in November. Um, I think what the and EPA is looking to provide what the industry has been asking for, which is certainty going forward. I was trying to disassociate the, the policy from the actual um, economics of the situation. And so certainly leading up until 2013 period, we had a lot of uh, build out uh, in the you know the biofuel sector, but a good portion of that, at least as far as the academic studies that I've read, um, attribute that 
to two things. One is certainly you had the renewable fuel standard indicating to the uh, you know investment community that those standards were going to be increasing, so they could plan on that. But on the other hand, you did have the economics that supported biofuel production. You had relatively inexpensive uh, commodity prices, and you had fairly expensive uh, crude oil prices, and so gasoline prices were rising relatively quickly, and so we were still below the blend wall, and so it was relatively easy to you know to produce ethanol and blend it into the fuel supply. Um, made economic sense because ethanol was relatively inexpensive compared to gasoline. Uh, as far as how that factors into farm income and commodity prices, it certainly that increased demand uh, for commodities did result in some portion of the the increase in uh, commodity prices that we did see over the last five years. When you have that stock-to-use ratio as being very tight, a little change in demand will have a relatively large change in price. And so um, as you did have uh, an increase in demand for corn to be used for ethanol production, you did see that translating into to higher prices for, for corn and for some of the other commodities that sort of follow the corn market. Now, though, however, we're, we're at the point where we're near the capacity for uh, producing and blending ethanol at um, certainly um, domestic ethanol refining capacity is roughly at about 15 billion gallons, maybe a little bit more right now. And we're getting pretty close to being able to blend 15 billion gallons into the fuel supply. So, plus we have stocks to use ratios as being much more recovered relative to, say, 2012-2013 period. And so, the effect of of any volumetric obligation right now around where the proposal is or where the even where the statutory was won't likely have nearly as much effect on commodity prices as you might have seen back when we were in the drought period or uh, you know when we had some other global uh, shocks to to world production of those grain commodities you know obviously we're in a global market for these commodities so anything that affects uh, corn production or wheat production or soybean production globally is going to affect prices in the United States as well. Robert Johansson, we want to thank you for taking time to be with us uh, here today on Open Mic. And it is Open Mic, so we offer you that for any thoughts you might have. Well, thanks very much. Um, we're looking forward to uh, seeing how the crop uh, develops over the next month. Uh, we had uh, pretty interesting results here in the last WASD. You know, we'll be collecting data and putting together our estimate going forward into September and look forward to talking about it more with you uh, when we have a chance to get together again. Our thanks to USDA Chief Economist Robert Johansson, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by CHS Inc., a leading global agribusiness owned by farmers, ranchers, and cooperatives across the United States, diversified in energy, grains, and foods, and committed to growing their business through domestic and global operations. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Nally.